0: Can we admit women are probably better at noticing it than we are? Uh, Probably. So there was a situation a number of years ago. My wife was trying to convince me to change the color of our front door to this beautiful bright red. And I was like, oh, man, you know how much work that would be? It would require taking the door off the hinges. Then we have to sand the whole thing. Then we have to tape up the key parts. We have to paint it, probably do a couple coats and replace it. And it all has to happen in a single day. So like, how are we going to be? We have to start this really early in the morning. It's going to wake up the kids. And she looks at me, and she smiles and says, yeah, but it would be beautiful. <laughs> Conversation done. And you know what? She was right. Like, like, it, was, it was beautiful walking up and have this bright, beautiful red door as we walked in. And neighbors would actually walk by the place and be like, I really like what you did with that door. It was beautiful. It was eye catching and it was important. Now, we're talking about unity in Psalm 133 today. And I will say fad unity, temporary unity, a unity that comes and goes is really easy. Every year, there is unity around one of two teams. In the Super Bowl, usually around hating one of the two teams rather than rooting for, but everyone gets upset, like, okay, I don't want them to win. I don't care who, who wins, but I definitely don't want them to. Or all kinds of things. You know, I, I think often some churches are getting unity around we hate what is happening in the world around us, and we hate the new way of doing things, and we do things the old way, and so there's unity around hating, which that comes and goes. That'll change. See, true Christian unity is hard, but it's beautiful. True Christian unity takes work, and it's worth every drop of sweat that you and I have to endure to make it happen. It's one reason why it's so good to read the Psalms, because the Psalms don't just tell us something. They give us the imagery for why we should want to do it. Psalm 133 is not just saying, here, have unity. It's saying, let me show you a great image of why it is beautiful. So I, I want in this time, this morning, to try and encourage you to make the effort for pursuing unity with your Christian brothers and sisters, to awkwardly speak about your struggles in the Christian faith, to invite people over for dinner and to talk about Jesus, to show up to church even when you're not feeling like it, and to sing when you're tired to encourage those around you, to pray for others when you say you will, because Christian unity is worth it. Now, If you haven't been around, just so you know, Pastor Yuri's been preaching through Ephesians chapter 4 on the call for Christian unity, and I thought it wise to bring up a psalm that also addressed it. Because if you look through your ESV Bible that we use in this church, you will see the word union, unity come up only four times. Twice in Ephesians 4, once in 1 Peter 3, and here in Psalm 133. Not a very common word in our English Standard Version. And some other versions might have like one or two more or one or two less, but it's about the same. If you look at the psalm, it starts a song of ascents of David. This is part of this series of psalms in this latter part of the book of psalms, bringing all the people of Israel up to Jerusalem. It's called an ascent because they literally have to climb the mountain to get to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And they would go there three times a year for the various holidays. And all these psalms give various dispositions, struggles, blessings that people have as they go to worship. Right before in Psalm 132, it's all about relying upon a foreign righteousness that comes from God. Specifically, we learn in the New Testament from Jesus. We are to pray on the promises that the Father makes to the Son. Now, in a similar way, this is the end of that section. This is when they are finally coming to a conclusion And they're saying, what matters as we gather? Well, this unity. Based on the work of Jesus, we can have this unity, based on what God has done. And now the psalmist David wants us to see why this unity is worth it. If you're taking notes, you can follow along. We're gonna talk about three motivations for a long-lasting unity that's not just a fad. What are the motivations to strive for a lasting unity that will not just pass. Three of them, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. Really easy, I know. Uh, First off goes from the title, because the title is part of this. From the title to verse 1, unity brings central focus. Why do we care about this true unity? Because unity brings central focus. David is all about who we are worshiping. Again, a song of ascents of David, verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant is it when brothers dwell in unity. David is the writer of this psalm. And so he's speaking first to an Israelite unity. What What was the unity for the Israelites around? One of the most important things when you're understanding a psalm Especially, but anywhere in the Bible, is you think what was the original audience intention? What were they understanding this? So when David talks about brothers who dwell in unity, how good it is! He's not talking about some people who get together and they open, and they have a house together. That's not the kind of dwelling he's talking about. This is a psalm of ascent. This is gathering to dwell in a tent outside of Jerusalem, as you worship for a week. The word good, he says, is like the days of creation when God blessed them and called them good. This is the way it should be. Pleasant means something that is acceptable to the senses, like fresh bread that you see cracked open and you smell it, and it just is acceptable and joyful to your senses. It's beautiful. And these people are here to worship Yahweh. See, people often take the call for unity out of context. Let's be united with everyone. We want to have a global harmony. No, the, the only unity he's talking about here is unity with everyone's eyes on God. As families would leave behind their farms. Sometimes fathers would leave behind their wife and daughters and they would go to Jerusalem because worshiping God was worth it. Raiders could come in and yet they trusted God. But, you know, being close to everyone isn't always easy, is it? You know, you can imagine the close quarters. And there's biblical examples of this too. Back in Genesis 13 verse 6, Abraham is living near his relative nephew Lot. And Genesis 13:6 says the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. They couldn't the land couldn't support all their possessions, their crops, their livestock, and so they separated out. But here, the Israelites are to live for a short time in very close quarters. And they would come from different tribes, different families all over the nation. Just like today, we, we come from different places. And you think about political situations, right? Where people have different in different areas of the country. They have different needs and desires and worries. And we're trying to bring unity to a country that has very different opinions about what matters, Same kind of stuff happened in Israel, too. But they had a central focus. Their goal, their affections, were set on worshiping Yahweh because they were a chosen nation. Isaac had Ishmael as his brother, but he was not chosen. chosen. Jacob had Esau, but he wasn't part of God's people. This brotherhood existed because God had called them to worship him. And David, who's writing this psalm, it was a hard-fought reality. You've got to remember back to the story of, of um, 2 Samuel, where David was told he would be king in 1 Samuel. Saul's finally dead in 2 Samuel, and then there's still conflict. There's still contending from the throne. There's literally a civil war happening between him and the son of Saul. But finally, David reflects. Unity has been achieved. Israelite unity was around the goal of worship, right? Christian unity is similar. Christians are are very different from one another, aren't we? Unity is key to the life of the church. As was read earlier, John 17 verse 22 and 23 the glory that you have given me Jesus said i have given to them that they may be one even as we are one i in them and you in me that we may that that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me we are called to be one, to reflect God's oneness. Now, on one hand, the New Testament constantly instructs believers to guard the truth, to contend earnestly for the purity of the faith, Jude chapter 3. And our unity is not just around all kinds of things, but like the Israelites, our unity is around worshiping the God who made us and Jesus who saved us. It's not a superficial unity that turns a blind eye to any doctrinal or moral issues that we might disagree upon. Rather, Jesus makes it very clear true unity is ground in a shared commitment to his lordship and the truth of his gospel. We have the same master to submit to. Christian unity is like Israelite unity, and it's all about the worship of the true God. And Hugh Latimer was a famous English Puritan. He was a pastor during the time of the reign of Bloody Mary. And Bloody Mary, the queen at the time, told him, you will submit to my teaching. You will submit to the Roman Catholic Church or you will die. Famously, he said, unity must be ordered according to God's holy word or else it were were better war than peace. Unity must be ordered according to God's holy word or else it would be better war than peace. If we want true, beautiful unity, it takes submitting to God's word. It takes driving us and even sometimes the sanding, painful process of getting our understanding of God's word correctly. Juan Sanchez, a pastor in Texas, writes, the world celebrates diversity. But you know what? The Bible doesn't celebrate diversity per se. The Bible celebrates unified diversity. He says you can go to a football game and you can see all kinds of people all wearing the same color. You can gather a diverse crowd around classical music or jazz. You can gather a diverse crowd around food or wine. But the gospel doesn't really gather a diverse crowd. It gathers a diversity and makes us one. As a hundred instruments are tuned to the same tuning fork, so we, our unity, is tuned around a focus on praising Jesus Christ. I, I know you know this. This is why we spend so much time in our church focusing on preaching, on teaching God's word. We believe it is so important. But I want you to consider... What connects you to people at ICC? There are many things that you can us, like a lot of good things. We have similar hobbies. We might have similar families. Maybe you have a long history together, and you have stories you get to share. Think about what are the areas that you converse with. One, One blessing that I love about our church is our diversity. There's, there's people from different types of families, different ages, different ethnic groups that come together and probably would never be together except of our mutual love for the Lord Jesus. Like there are some churches, and I understand why they do that, but they say, oh, you know what, we're going to have a service for these kinds of people over here. I, I literally talked to one pastor who said, you know what, you old people in our church, if you want to listen to the hymns, you're going to meet on Thursday because we don't want those in our service because they not, they're not as fun for the new people in our church. It was like, wow, really? Sometimes there are songs that I don't like. There are songs that, that you don't like. There are different voices, and the kids make noise. People have issues. There's things that come up, and yet when we gather together, we are united for what? Worship of God. So let's rejoice over those differences. Let's rejoice over the noises and over the challenges, over some of the hard parts about dwelling together because we are dwelling together. If you're like me, not everything in the church goes the way you want it to. That's that's my case. But our our unity isn't around any one person's opinions on the Lord Jesus. H.B. Charles is a pastor in Jacksonville, Florida, and and he is a pastor over a recently combined all-black church and all-white Baptist church, and they came together. And, And he writes on this, and he says, our church's congregations were able to practice unity to the degree we focused on Christ. We kept the gospel first, and we let the word of God have the last say. He says, however, to the degree that we allowed secondary things, like ministry programs, music styles, church structure, even sanctuary seats to become primary, we inevitably saw division come about. For Christ's sake, we must tear down any dividing walls of hostility among us. The reason that we want to keep unity is because it keeps our focus on God. And when we keep our focus on God, we keep unity. That is the true, beautiful Christian unity. And we are able to do that when we keep going back to the gospel, to the reasons that we have been saved. Secondly, the second motivation to is to say that, why should we want unity? Because unity reveals spiritual approval. Verse 2, unity reveals spiritual approval. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. David is referring to unity is like the anointing ceremony of Aaron. And this sounds so weird to 21st century Americans, doesn't it? Like especially those of you who um, had more blemishes on your face when you were growing up as a young person. You knew oil? Bad. Don't put it on me. Some of you are like, actually, oil becomes pretty good later in life. Okay. But that seems gross, right? Like, who, why, why would we say this is great like oil being poured on Aaron? Why is oil on someone's face a beautiful thing? but he's referring to a historical moment. He didn't just say, a priest. He said, Aaron. Now, this references back to Leviticus chapter 8. If you want to turn there, you can. But remember, Leviticus after 8 comes after the Exodus, where Israel had spent 400 years in Egypt. <coughs> Excuse me. 400 years in Egypt, and they had escaped Through the exodus, God's miraculous bringing them out of slavery. It was an amazing time. And now God was establishing priests for them. Priests to be the go-between. There was going to still be sin. They had sinned already coming out. They had sinned in Egypt. But now these men would offer sacrifices for their sin. People gathered to hear God's command in Leviticus chapter 8 for sacrifices that would cleanse them from all their previous wrongdoing. Then God called Aaron and his sons forward and Leviticus 8 verse 30. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and he sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments, and his sons, and his sons' garments with them, Leviticus eight thirty. This was a special oil, compounded and used only for sacred purposes. Skilled perfume makers blended the choicest spices—myrrh, cinnamon, sweet cane, cassia—in olive oil, according to Exodus thirty. And this was saying, we are commissioning you; we are setting these priests apart to a special job. And then in Leviticus 9, they do that special job. They offer the sacrifices. Leviticus 9, 15. Then he presented the people's offering, and he took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people, and he killed it. And he offered it as a sin offering like the first one. Verse 24 of Leviticus 9. The fire came from before the Lord, and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces because God had accepted the sacrifice. I again, put yourself in their shoes. What joy would it have been? You know your sin. In fact, a lot of people have been doing wrong and have died during all this exodus process. It has not been a very sweet and clean process. They have heard the voice of God and trembled. And here, a sacrifice is given. Their sins are forgiven. And unity in this kingdom of priests is the same joy today. Just as the 12 tribes kind of stationed around the tabernacle, and during this psalm, all of Israel was built around the temple gatherings where they would come and they would praise him because they knew their common need for forgiveness and trust in God's work. You know, today, the same is true for a Christian's anointing. For a Christian being given the anointing of the Holy Spirit, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and we're all made to drink of the spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, contrary to what some people might believe, there is no second anointing of the Holy Spirit. Every person, when they are forgiven and saved in Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit and the spirit dwells in and among believers at salvation. Christians are saved from our sin and we are commissioned then to intercede for the world. Beautiful unity is built around our common salvation as Pastor Yuri has been teaching on. See, unity brings spiritual joy because we recognize we all need it. You, you look around, you're like, these people around me, are all kinds of messed up, but so am I. And we sing about that. David Clarkson, who was a pastor centuries ago, said, many of these particular people join together to worship God. Then several streams of praise are united and meet in one so that the presence of God, which enjoyed in private, is but a stream but in public, it becomes a river, a river that makes glad the city of God. All of our voices rejoicing over the same thing, our forgiveness. Even in the midst of struggles, when you doubt God's goodness, there's something about hearing everyone else around you sing it and praise God and recount these truths, and you're like, Okay, this is true. Maybe I'm not crazy. In our call to worship, Jesus defined the subjects of those unity. That it's not just anyone, but it's those who know who he is, who know who sent him, and who have believed and received his word. We have unity around mutual salvation. Oh, when you get together, you have a great many things to discuss. Catching up on what's been happening the past week. But perhaps one of the greatest things we often miss is just asking someone how they were saved. What's your testimony? The the elders get the great privilege of welcoming new members in, and we get to hear their testimonies and what God has brought them through and saved them from. And it is such an encouraging time. And I feel like often we don't talk about that enough. I know it seems like weird, like, okay, well, let me tell you this story from years ago. But when we rejoice over salvation, when we look at someone like, and yeah, they have problems, but they've been saved. That when God looks at you, and he looks at the Christian next to you, he no longer frowns, but he smiles because of what Jesus did. Suddenly, like, and this person and me, we're the same. Now, as always, there are people who do not yet know Jesus. Or, or there's some of you who, who've been to church millions of times, and yet you haven't really thought about it. And, and I want us to remember, especially, that with those who are truly Christian, we know that we failed each other, don't we? We know that we failed those around us. We failed to create this unity that is described here and in Ephesians 4. We failed to live as Christians must. We have not been like Jesus, right? We know this. And this means we've actually offended God more than you, unbeliever, more than you, Christian. Like other Christians have offended God more. And that's the whole point. God's standards are so impossibly high because they are perfect. God can't look upon evil. God can't ignore evil. Even the smallest bit, God looks and he must judge because he is a good and righteous judge. He does not allow it. But he made a way. He sent Jesus. God made flesh to live among us who actually did do everything he was supposed to. He lived the life you and I are supposed to live. He followed God every step of the way and wicked people killed him for it. But not just wicked people. You guys know wicked people, but also God the Father took all the evil that we had done and put it upon God the Son so that he would be our sin and we would be his righteousness. If, if you've heard that before and, and you think about it, or maybe you've never really thought about that before, again, talk to someone around you. Encourage you, just any of the neighbors, and people around you, speak with them. Encourage. Ask them about this. Because this is what we are about, not being perfect people, but having a perfect Savior who we receive that forgiveness from. This is our unity. We rejoice as the anointing comes, as the Holy Spirit saves God reminds us what we've been saved from. Oh, we've seen this unity is around God. This unity is around what God has done in bringing salvation. And third, very practically, unity brings needed deliveries. And say deliverance, deliveries. Verse 3, again, Psalm 133, verse 3. Unity, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. He gave the image of Aaron, now he gives the image of Dew in Israel. This is like the second verse that rhymes with the first. David gives another image of why unity is worth the effort. And Mount Hermon is in the north, it's one of the highest mountains, probably the highest mountain. In Israel, 9,232 feet above sea level. While Mount Zion is relatively small, around 2,846 feet. So again, Hermon, huge. Zion, not so much. But you know what's the same in both? The dew. The same dew that arrived on the great mountain also arrives on the little Zion where the temple is. It's hard for us to understand in a world of aqueducts and water lines what the benefit of dew would be. But imagine you're in a long drought, right? And you're a farmer, and dew appears on the plants in the morning. And that dew Nourishes your plants. Like, you know, just like in Southern California, there was a dry season where no rain would come to Jerusalem from May to October every year. And at least two pilgrimages were held in the summer, the Feast of the First Fruits in kind of May or June, and the Feast of Booths in September. And so you'd have these people traveling from the mountains all the way from Mount Hermon down to Mount Zion. And there could almost be a sense of like, well, why would I leave home? I have everything I need. It's hot here. It's dry here. But the dew would provide much needed watering and cooling in the morning. And so throughout the Bible, when you get to the prophets, when dew is withheld, it is a sign of judgment upon the people. Haggai chapter 1 verse 10 says, The heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. Haggai one ten is saying that disobedience leads to no due. And so unity is like that blessing of due. It is life-giving in the dry heat. When we are overwhelmed in life, unity is like fresh drops in the morning bringing cool. He says he has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The Lord had commanded blessing upon his people when they lived together in this unity. When they came to Zion three times a year, they were not just doing that because it was the best party in in the nation. They were doing that in obedience to God. And when they came together in obedience, they had divine blessing on their side. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse eight says, the Lord will command blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake and he will bless you in the land that the Lord God is giving you. In the new covenant, we don't have the same blessing. Right? There is no cause and effect directly associated. And you say, oh, well, if we do good things, God will bless us. If we do bad things, then we won't have enough money. That's not continued in the new covenant. Praise God for that, because we would be in a lot of trouble. But you know what he does say? Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Why is unity, the unity around salvation, worth going after? Because it is a blessing that comes from God that provides for his people. Eternal life, and as Jesus said, he who has not given father, mother, child will not receive 10 times that in this life and in the life to come. Unity in the church brings relief. It's part of being God's eternal family, but it also helps us in hard times. You might not know but in 1940, the Nazi, Nazi-controlled Germany went into the Netherlands and they conquered the Netherlands. And so they were setting up rules and regulations. And it was a very hard time, as often can be told, of being under conquest during World War II and every war. And one response of the Dutch Reformed Church was that they organized the deacons to care for the politically oppressed, they would supply food, and they would even provide secret refuge from the enemies of the Nazi party. Now, realizing what happened, the Nazis decreed that the office of the deacon should be eliminated in the Reformed church. But the church was united in love both for what God's word said and for their care for others. And so the Dutch believers got together and they made a resolution which says, whoever touches the deaconate interferes with what Christ has ordained as the task of the church. Whoever lays hands on the Dacanoia lays hands on worship. And you know what the Germans did? They backed down. (laughs) Because they're like, oh man, we're not going to mess with the worship of the churches. The deacons in those Dutch churches were there to help. The church was united around those who were showing love and blessing to others. And Christians, I know you want to have this kind of unity that gives life-giving hope and help. this, This is why in our church we provide meals for people in times of need. People sign up and say, hey, I'd like to give a meal to someone. We organize those and bring them over. When when someone needs a ride to or from church, we help with that. We celebrate good times. There's a card ministry to let people know we are praying for them. And we must remember that the building of this kind of unity needs to happen before the bad times hit. Because we need to know and care before So when someone is new, you guys do a great job of welcoming them into this unity. I know it's hard at times to be loving towards those who are different than you, but that is what we are called to do. When we don't know what to say, we just try and love. Yeah, there's different languages and cultures, and we're going to step on each other's toes at times, but it's worth pursuing. It's worth loving. Oh, one helpful tip, as the great commandment is, love others as you would have them love you. So however you want someone to treat you, go and treat them the same, right? Uh, unity is beautiful. said for three reasons. Unity brings focus onto Jesus as the most beautiful one. Unity brings spiritual blessings. Knowing our forgiveness is given to us. And unity brings life-giving resources when we're spent. Unity is a blessing. It's beautiful, right? But um, David spoke better than he acted, didn't he? Because this is the same King David who committed adultery with Bathsheba, who murdered her husband Uriah, and who then tried to hide it, and proceeded to cause another civil war with his own son Absalom because he wouldn't deal with the situation. David is talking about something high and lofty, and the same David, by his inaction, destroys that very unity. I I think at times when we talk about unity, we talk about how beautiful it is, there can be this little frustration that goes up of like, but I'm not part of that. Where is that? I read one person who says, one day a disgruntled reader wrote to the editor of his local newspaper claiming, this newspaper is not what it used to be. And the editor replied, actually, it never was what you think it was. You know, the same could be said about the church. This doesn't stop us from looking back at some non-existent golden age. Oh, it was so great back then. Some of us look back just to our childhood or maybe even just to a few years ago. Others, people look back to the book of Acts, and they're like, look at how united they were. Let's get back to the book of Acts. I'm like, are you reading the same book of Acts that I am? Because in Acts chapter 6, they have to create deacons because the people are saying, you know what? I don't like those widows over there. They're not getting my food, right? You, you, You walk through the Bible, and there are so many problems. And this is a reminder to us that we need greater than David. We need Jesus, who provides for unity in the midst of our sins and imperfections. When someone fails you, you love them because Jesus has loved you. When you have to go out of your way, to try and pursue that relationship, to make it right. When you have to do that, you'll, I will do that because Jesus went out of his way, becoming man on earth for me. When someone threatens the unity with their gossip, you love them enough to say something and say, no, you're trying, what you're doing, I know you don't mean to, but you're hurting. Unity is worth working through all the awkwardness and all the problems. Because John 13, 35, Jesus said, All people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is our call to love. And may God create and reflect the unity that we need, even in the midst of our failures and struggles. Let me pray. God in heaven.